to Man Enough. I'm Justin Baldoni. I'm Liz Plank. Jamie Heath. And Jamie Heath is having uh, Wi-Fi issues, internet issues, so he's feeling so insecure right phone. now. In fact, I'm in my son's room, Mac Giovanni, who's at, you know going to school and college now, and I'm in his bare room. It used to be covered in all kinds of stuff, so there's nothing in here because I locked myself out of the office, so set is not available to me today. What's your, <laughs> why aren't you guys on set? <laughs> You're well, out. I I live I live far away, and Liz lives far away. Okay, no we got a great show today. Liz, who's on today? A friend of yours. Nor Nor Tagori, uh, my hero. She's an amazing journalist um, who makes documentaries. Uh, she has a fashion line. She has an amazing relationship, um, and 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 shares about so many different things: issues of mental health, Islamophobia, women's rights. She's incredible. Mm. Well, let's jump in. Let's do it. We'll be right back. This is Man Enough. Hello, and welcome back to Man Enough. Hi, Nor. Hi, Justin. Hi, Liz. <laughs> hey, Dana. Hey. So, so happy you're here. Thank you so much for joining us. That's a cool room you're in. For those of you who are who are just listening and you can't see, she's in this awesome okay. big. It looks like a super creative space. Like I just want to go be creative in that room and do something. I made a sunroom. My grandmother, she was talking to me about downsizing and, and trying to get another house, and she was like, "As long as the house has a sunroom for all my plant babies, because she has a lot of plants, mm. and I don't have plants like that." But growing up, we always like that was always my favorite room in the house to read in, mm. and so I we have the most incredible view. I have binoculars on our coffee table in our makeshift sunroom because the most incredible birds sit right outside and we have like a little core that sits outside and it's like my favorite thing it's like what a conversation starter yeah hi like my name is nor and on in my free time i like to bird watch like i didn't know i was gonna get to say that at 28 I think millennials oh. are the new elders. I, I just think we went straight to <laughs> basil garden, bird watching, yep. yeah. staying in and knitting. Like we're over it. We we kind of skipped the middle age part. We went from children to elderly. Well, I've always said that children and elders have all the answers we're looking for. 100%. And then everybody else, like, and, and basically what it is, is that you're, once you become an elder, you're just trying, like, the journey of it is coming back to who you were as a kid or like mm -hmm. your inner child or maintaining that relationship. And it's like, just cut to the chase. Like, why are you trying to run away from who you know you've been the whole time? I love it. And also you have, you have, when you're a child, you know, you have not um, learned about prejudice, hatred, all these things mm -hmm. that, you know, we learn as we get older, when we're young, inherently we are um, accepting of people. And I think also then when we get older in our older years and we're getting closer to being in the next world, we are mm -hmm. getting more in contact with those, you know, um, that oneness, wanting to come at peace with a lot of stuff. <laughs> Our ego mm -hmm. gets out of the way. So, uh, and that's why I'm best friends with Jamie. He's an elder. And share something that I just learned yesterday, actually. So I'm going to show you, I'm going to grab a book real quick and I'm going to show you guys something. Jamie, you mentioned like when we we're babies, or when we're young, we haven't like really experienced or known prejudice and or hatred. Um, and one of the things that I've been like very deeply investigating lately is prejudice and stereotypes and, and the way that we tell stories and how we tell them. And I found this book on my bookshelf that I got from a local bookstore here, I think when we first moved, and it's a children's book called This Is Your Brain on Stereotypes. Mm. And uh. it's called this is your brain on stereotypes, how science is tackling unconscious bias. And it's like, it's a children's book, but it's really for all, it's really for adults. Like it uses a lot of big words, even for me. <laughs> and um, one of the things that it writes about is actually something called baby bias. And it was really fascinating because it was, it there, there was a study that they um, unpacked that showed that like, as young as three months old, we are internalizing certain bias that's just based on like what we're used to. And it was, the, I, I don't want to butcher the study, but there was um, like babies who were around the same races themselves and like the same people 
tended to look at those people a lot longer um, versus like people who were of a different race. And then the babies who were surrounded by different, like just diversity, essentially, um, they didn't have that level of like focus or or different. So the, the concept was that we start to carry specific biases and then obviously adults put meaning onto them and then we create storylines, but that's why it's so hard for us to tackle our own unconscious prejudice and bias is because it like we've been carrying early. them since yeah. we were children without yeah. even realizing it. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing because it takes a lot for us to sit down and be like, Hey, like they're probably, is, we all have bias. We do, even if we mm-hmm. think we're the most open, accepting, loving people, which is what we may always constantly strive for. But this, the storylines have been surrounding us since we were children and we have to like choose to decide that we want to unlearn things or we want to take on a journey of like stepping out of storylines that no Mm -hmm. longer serve us. And, and, and what I actually, what you're saying, I experienced because I have, I have four kids and I know that, you know, at at first they're comfortable with what they're familiar with and then something Mm -hmm. new or different comes in and then they have exactly what you just expressed. And however, one of the things that's different is, you can have bias or you might feel safer in one environment versus another because it's familiar. But children don't have that thing that we learn where then therefore, because they're different or I'm not mm-hmm. as comfortable, I don't think you're less than or you're evil totally. or any of that stuff, right? That then we start to put those narratives that we learn as we grow up and then create these storylines. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, I, I hear that point. Okay, hold on, guys. Can we introduce the audience to this? <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, right, <laughs> sorry. Already being... <laughs> We're already at the school of Nortagore. Th- thank you for having us on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we we so would love welcome. to introduce everybody to you. Yeah. So we are joined today by none of the Nortagore. She's an award-winning journalist and producer. She is blazing a trail and has built an aware and engaged community of over 2 million social media followers. Boom, boom, the boom. three of us are part of that group. Uh, big fans. And Nora's innovative storytelling is told through a lens of service, emphasizing sub-communities in the West to focus on identity and representation. She's currently working on an investigative series called Rep, the Story we tell of, of us, uh, investigating the relationship between politics, pop culture, public opinion through the dynamic of representation of Muslims and how it continues to impact us all. Thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to join us. We're, we're really excited to have you on the show. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to jam and continue to learn from Jamie. <laughs> oh, because I'm the elder here. By the way, your name means light. And I love yes. that. Thank and you. You're in a room my filled name. with light. Great rooms are oh. light. Thank you so much. Yeah, I. It's so funny. I used to um, feel so much shame around my name because it was so different from wow. obviously what I was used to <laughs> growing up. And um, my middle name is Al Huda. So Al Huda means um, mm. the guidance. So it's the light of guidance or the guiding light. And mm. I'm so like proud of my name now that I get so excited when people know what it means. But it's like I'm I also I have so much tenderness and grace for like my younger self who really just wanted to be named like I think the name that I wanted was Roxy. That was the name I was obsessed with as a kid. Did you ever have another name when you were younger like that you would tell your friends at school or anything of that nature because of that? Oh, my God. No, my parents would never have let that happen. I, I mean, I. And granted, I know that a lot of people change their names so that they can feel more comfortable and like that it's easier for people to say there's a whole situation. Actually, in the same children's book, I read this whole thing about how um, like a lot of Muslims in Sweden like began to change their names. Um, And part of it like went the top three reasons it was like it's hard to pronounce or they were being discriminated against or they just like were seeking more acceptance. So I understand that that's totally a thing. But Mm. I... I was lucky that my name was easy to say and um, it just didn't rhyme with all the nicest things. And so I still got a lot of like comments around my name, but I love it so much. Like it's just such, I think it's such an iconic name now. I mean, literally Queen Noor, who, who wasn't named Noor at birth, like chose that name. And I remember like when I saw a white woman take that name. I was like, "Oh, guess guess it must be cool." <laughs> that was my Jamie good and self, I, though. Jamie and I are both uh, followers of the Baha'i faith, so we practice the Baha'i faith, and and Nor is one of the months. Mm-hmm. So it's 
the month of light, obviously. It's N-U-R. Yeah. N-U-R, yeah. N-U-R. My sister's name is Naime, which is a Persian name. Mm-hmm. And so you had this black girl in school already different because she was black in the area that we were in. And then she had this name Naime. And she was one for a while because of um, not loving her name before she embraced mm-hmm. it. She went mm-hmm. by her middle name, which was Rochelle. And mm. um, because of that, that same thing. And um, and then she got to be a, just in, a, in college. And all of a sudden she was like, I love my name. Mm. Yeah. I love what it means. I mean, and what it stands your name for, is a journey. From. Like in itself, I really, really believe that. It's like, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the lanes of coming back to yourself. Mm. Mm. You're listening to the Man Enough Podcast. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Man Enough Podcast. Okay, Nor, uh, let's dive in. You ready? Yeah. When, this is the question we ask every guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, when was the last time that you didn't feel enough? Last week. <laughs> Literally last week. What happened? Oh my gosh. Well, it was a series of things, but, um, and not to like throw Mercury retrograde into the mix of it, but it really like, it hit so hard oh my god you and liz are the same person That's i'm all convinced we did. <laughs> you started yeah. you started with data and now you're talking about mercury and retrograde but you and like, liz are the same person i'm convinced you can't it doesn't compliment the, to the data of mercury retrograde does not lie <laughs> like it it can't be this hard th- during that time period like it it's like i almost i feel the retro i feel my world literally go and like just yeah. <laughs> go a different direction but okay so I worked through this a lot through therapy yesterday, so I think I can talk about it. But I think one of my one of my belief systems that I was carrying was that I feel undeserving sometimes. Mm-hmm. And um and it was funny because we actually had to like unpack the word deserve and like why like why we should just stop using that word. Like what like mm-hmm. what does it mean to deserve something? Like what meter are we are we measuring deserving on? Mm-hmm. But it's something that I I felt and and when I traced it back, I um traced it back to when I was 18 and I started getting a lot of attention on the internet for just like being very vocal about my dream and what I wanted to do. And somebody who I had really respected and looked up to had told me that I didn't deserve the attention that I was getting, or I didn't deserve the success that I was getting because I hadn't worked for it yet. And as somebody who had like just started working, like I I've had a job in journalism since I was 15. So I've, yeah, I've worked, worked so hard. I've, <laughs> <laughs> You're like, Wow, I, like, that's just the I last thing just, I used to describe you. Like, I was like, you're no, you you work so hard, and it's really so like in to... such a beautiful way. But keep going. Thank you, thank you. I I just I'm so obs- I'm obsessed. Like I love I just really love telling stories, and I it's all I ever really wanted to do. So, anyway, so that person had said that, and then I was like, and then I traced it back to the last time I had done an investigative series, which this is like the time, this is like the first series that I'm doing since then, which that was like. It, it wrapped in 2018 and I had, I had to process a lot of it. Cause that was, I mean, Liz, we've talked about sold in America where I spent years investigating the sex trade in the U S and I mm. had to unpack a lot of like trauma that that brought up for me. And so, um, anyway, and so in that process, like one of the things that, um, one of my higher ups had said to me was like when I had asked for a raise, and I found out everybody else was getting a raise. He was like, well, you're like, you know, the face of the company and you get to tell all the stories that you want. Like, I thought that would be enough for you. Mm. And so mm. like I had that moment years before. And then this past week, it kind of almost came up in a way where I was mostly, there were things that were happening by people that I was working with that wasn't right. But I was also projecting my insecurity of like, I like I let things slide for so long because I feel like I felt lucky that they were even working with me, even though I was um. paying them and we were a team and like there was a contract where the work was supposed to be delivered. Like I found myself in that thought loop of like, I should just be glad that like somebody is doing it. And so um, I definitely didn't feel enough because I... Um, like it didn't step into like my full leader power. And I think that this, because this is like the first investigative series that I'm doing under my own production company and 
like I have like an amazing partner. I heart just like, you know, giving me money and uh, like resources and saying like, Hey, go create the story that you need to tell. I'm just like, Oh my gosh, this is the most amazing amount of responsibility that I've ever been given and trust I've ever been given. And so like, Hmm. I definitely have fallen into feeling, um, like the pressure of that. And now I feel like I've pulled myself out of a lot of that. And I think that's like a very, you know, I don't want to say normal, but it's a very expected like learning curve as a leader. And this is like a different kind of leading like that I haven't been used to, but I really love being here because I think that like when you, when you focus, like when you're just intentional about your work and you have like that lens of empathy, like I get to see people in their element and like be able to notice when they don't feel deserving or they don't feel enough and how we can like pull them up and make sure that they're working their best. So Mm -hmm. that's a long answer, but like, that's basically what I unpacked in therapy yesterday. Wow. I want (laughs) to reframe iHeart. iHeart's not giving you money. They're paying you money and you're, they're getting a big return on that money. Uh, they're, 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 they're the lucky ones in this equation. See, thank Um, you so much for continuing my therapy session, Liz. Anytime. (laughs) Well, that's what we're doing here today. You're listening to the Man Enough Podcast. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Man Enough Podcast. I I do want to go deeper into your work because I think that you, um, you know, I I relate to you in, in so many different ways. I also come from the world of journalism. And one thing that really struck me when I started working in the industry was just this concept of objectivity, like coming from a women's studies background, gender theory, you just learned that, that it actually doesn't exist. Like everyone has a subjectivity uh, and that is how we see the world. There's no such thing as like the truth and an objective truth. It's everyone seeing it through their own eyes. Uh, And in journalism, as everyone probably knows, uh, as with the rest of, um, you know, art and music, and it often is coming from a white, uh, male, cisgender, non-disabled perspective. Um, and even when it came to masculinity, which is what this podcast is all about, mm-hmm. I even noticed that there was this idea of, oh, well, men are just like this, and, you know, testosterone does this, and, you know, boys will be boys, um, as if it was an objective truth, as if it could yeah. be actually one interpretation uh, of the uh, experience of being a man. So I'm just curious, what does objectivity Mm. mean to you? Does it exist? Um, And then how can men sort of assess their own bias? So my news directors have always been men. My bosses have always been men. Most of my team has like always been men. The people I work with are typically all men. Um, But I think that that comes down to being able to sit with the, the beliefs that you have, the beliefs that you carry about people who are not you and and lay those out, write those out, and then start tracing back where they come from. And that's what I've been telling people in general. Like I've been doing this work on myself too. So it's, it's not just for men, but being able to like sit and be like, what are the things that I believe and that I've always believed to be true? And where do those things actually come from? And it is a mm-hmm. really hard, scary place to be, to question the things that you've believed your whole life because it requires you to recognize that a lot of these beliefs that we carry are ones that were just given to us and ones that we haven't challenged because we love being comfortable. We love being comfortable around our family, around our loved ones, around our community members. And when we stay in that comfort, like you can, you can do that and you can decide not to evolve, but sometimes that comes out sideways because then you're like, there's whether it's resentment that builds up, whether it's confusion, whether it's anger, whether it's sadness, like there's some type of something forms out of your stagnation Mm -hmm. or you can choose to like be open and challenge the things that you've believed, which was my 2021 intention was to be more open. And it was the hardest, one of the hardest years I'd ever had, even though openness feels like light, it feels airy, it feels easy to get there is quite excruciating. Like you have to move through your muck. You have to like unpack the th- the, the, the closed off parts of you and you have to acknowledge them. And mm. so I remember when I first started out in like being a journalist, 
being objective, being fair and balanced is like one of the things that my dad always told me. He was like, this is what you're going to do. You have to be objective. You have to be unbiased. Like he's the one who actually taught me what that meant. And he loves consuming news and following news. And, um, and my dad too. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so, so weird. Yeah. It's like the soundtrack of my entire childhood. Yeah. The radio. I mean, I don't know. Like people don't. Yes. Liz and I have had very, very similar work, like trajectory experiences, like backgrounds and stuff. So we're very, very aligned. But um, yeah. And so when I decided to put on the hijab when I was like about 16 years old and I like homeschooled the rest of my high school so I could start college early because I knew it would be really hard to like do my like basically get on television with this on. I started um, shadowing journalists obsessively and I started asking them if they thought I could do this. And one of the things that kept coming up was that, and it was always by like cishet white men, like you will never be able to be objective while wearing that. And I just remember thinking like, Hmm. it was like, if I wear this, then the lens in which the story is being told is being told by this like piece of like fabric that I, that I decide to wear. And I remember like getting upset one time just at someone and being like, it's not like I'm going to go and tell a story about a fire and then say, Oh, and by the way, the way that my hijab plays a role in this story is like this, like that doesn't even make sense. In fact, it's like, I would, I'm more aware of the fact that like, I just like to be clear and objective, but it also deterred me. And I'm still unpacking this in this process of like doing the series. I never, ever, ever took on like American Muslim related stories. I mean, a handful of times, but rarely ever because I had this huge fear that people were going to see me as bias or not objective. And that's because like, that's the thing that you get drilled into your brain Mm -hmm. in journalism school, where by the way, every single one of my professors were also white men, except for one who taught journalism in the Middle East and North Africa. And And it's like this thing, this almost like this pride point, but the the confusion that I always had was, but you're also, as my news director, you all are approving the stories that I get to tell. You're saying this story is important enough for our, our viewers, our listeners, our readers, and this one isn't. And because you're not a part of or in tune with a lot of the sub communities in this area, like you don't know what's actually important. And I remember like anytime I, I would do a story, it would always do so, so, so well. And Uh it was because like, it came from a place of like, I have my eyes and ears on the ground. Like I know what's happening in other communities because I feel like when you're a part of a sub community, oftentimes it's sometimes easier to like, connect with with others like I almost felt like my wearing a hijab was also my entry point to building trust with people it was like I got to like people were very confused Mm. and then I got Mm. to sit down and just be like share with me your concerns because people because oftentimes the stories that I were doing people were very skeptical of talking to journalists and I would hear their concerns and I would be able to be like hey I I know what it's like to be misrepresented or misidentified I know what it's like to have someone take your story and exploit it and I'm telling you like that that will never that is not my intention that will never happen and to this day, thank God and I hope it always stays this way I've never had anybody ever be like less than happy with the story that they've been a part of. That's been something that I've been like that I've produced. And I really think that it's come down to that. And so along that journey, I mean, and my partner on rep, Zaren Burnett, he's the one who like first set phrased it this way to me. And I was just like, oh, that makes sense. He was like, objectivity is a white fallacy. Like it, it literally, it doesn't exist. And we can talk about being fair and balanced, but in the words of Christiane Amanpour, you must never draw a false moral equivalence. And that's what happens in journalism school and in news stations when you're teaching people the concept of objectivity, but then you, you stop it there. There's no nuance. There's no context. You just keep it there. People think that when we're covering a situation where there's a very clear oppressor and a clear oppressed we just have to give them similar airtime. And that's not what being fair and balanced is. Like we still have to be human. 
And I think that that's what I keep coming back to is like, how are we making sure that there is humanity in the stories that we're telling? Like, we are so sick of just like the robotics of how news is delivered to us. I mean, I love, I love local news so much. Like I get, I love reading local newspapers. I unfortunately am not very into local television news, even though that's like where that was like all I ever wanted to do. And I, and I did it for a period of time, but I realized like there's such a lack of soul almost in, in being able to connect with people. I mean, we're taught how to speak for one that like, isn't how we necessarily speak. Um, most people like in small local TV markets, like they're not trying to stay there for more than a year or two. So there's a lack of trust oftentimes that, that are not as much trust as you'd like between communities. And this isn't obviously everyone I'm like, I'm speaking to the experience that I've had or what I've seen or even participated in myself. Um, and so I think that there's a lot for us to incorporate when it comes to, um, how we want to reframe telling fair stories. But I think that when it comes to how we see each other and and, and bias bias in in our relationships and our and the way that we tell stories, like mm. the answer is just shut up and listen. <laughs> shut up and listen. Wow. Yeah, we're so like we're so used. To, shut up and listen is actually the name of a really great TED talk. That was I think <laughs> it was the second TED talk I'd ever listened to, and it's re it's it's actually a really good listen. I mean, I haven't listened to it in like ten years, but. Um, it it talks about like basically white saviorism and and the harm that 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 does and how like when we have good intentions of wanting to do better wanting to evolve wanting to grow wanting to be more open um we have to like not self-sabotage by like trying to prove ourselves because there's nothing for you to prove. And that's what it comes down to, right? Like when we choose not to listen and and we just want to like keep talking and talking, it is literally like we're trying to let people know we're enough and mm. you are enough. No, you are. You're speaking my language right now. You're speaking my language. You have to accept that you're, you're enough and and when you have the intention of wanting to evolve and grow, people people recognize that. And so they'll want yeah. to want to be a part of that. But Justin, you've talked about how you've been taught this white savior. Oh, right? literally, like from yeah. The things you, so, so can you, yeah, talk about that. Like what, what was that like for you? And, and, and Nora, you know, you can maybe offer diff a different perspective for men who are listening. Well, I, I, it's funny. In my, here we are being, talk about being elitist. In my TED talk, uh, I spoke at TED Women and one of the uh, a huge part of my TED talk that was shut up and listen because I was talking about how I had become this kind of outspoken feminist and yet at home I was talking over my wife and I realized that I had to shut up and listen. That was kind of the the moral of my TED talk. But I'm um you're so damn smart and you have such a unique perspective. I'm very curious for men because what I love about this podcast is we get to ask questions that we don't normally get to ask. And um, and there's a lot of men who could be listening that I would love, I would love to see if they could have a viewpoint uh, experience of what it's like to be a woman who walks around the world wearing a hijab. Like what does that what do you experience on a daily basis? What do you, I mean, especially for the, for the white men, how can these same men be better allies to mm. Muslim women? Mm. It depends on, so I will only be able to speak for myself, obviously, because it's so, such an individual, but, but before I do that, it's really important to note that, you know, my experience is, a very, I mean, it's very special and I feel very lucky that I live in a country that has not made laws around whether, like how I get to choose to dress or how yeah. I get to choose to practice my faith. There are women in France who have been fighting for the right to show up as the way that they want to dress the way that they want to for many, many years. Mm -hmm. um, there are currently uh, women who are college students in India who are being banned from their classes because they wear hijab, where there are millions of Muslims, there are problems in Singapore, there are 
I mean, in Sweden, like there's women in Quebec too in Canada right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Quebec and France, you know. And what do you think this is really about? What is that really about? Like strip it all down. Controlling women's bodies. Like we, I mean, we love, like, it's not just about the hijab. I mean, like, how is it that we're still fighting for abortion rights in 2022? That doesn't, it's, it, it, it does not make sense. It comes down to um, controlling bodies and also taking away power of choice and, um, and the savior part is a part of it too. Like it's, it's this belief that has been perpetuated in media very, very deeply. And then through policy and then through mass public opinion that, um, specifically like women who choose to wear the hijab are oppressed or it's not a choice or whatever it is. And, you know, I was thinking about this because I constantly renew my intention of like, why do I wear it? Like I like the, 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 it changes like every day and it's not. And I used to think that it had to be a specific reason that people wanted it to be both Muslim people and people who weren't Muslim. Like I, there's all there was almost like this sense of performance with it because it's so scrutinized and i realized like that's so devastating that so many people have that experience with literally the thing that is supposed to be the most personal choice in your whole life and it's an option like in the quran it's an it's an option right it's well of not, course uh, like i mean the quran literally says everything is supposed to be is an option like everything is a choice it says like there's a whole ver- there's a verse that very clearly states there is no compulsion in religion and the reason for that is because in islam everything comes down to intention what your mm-hmm. intention is like so if you even even if you have like for example if you have the intention to um to donate to to somebody who is in need that you see passing by um, and you're not able to because like maybe you didn't have cash on you or something like you are still rewarded for that intention like the intention weighs as much as like the actual act because everything comes down to your intention and so putting it on it's like you have to also I have to ask myself like am I putting this on for myself or God am I putting this on to impress my parents am I putting this on to impress my community am I putting this on for whatever like I have to renew that intention constantly and mm-hmm. the intention that I realized like for right now like the reason that I I'm choosing to wear it is because I really just love the choice of like who gets to see what Like, that's as simple as it is. Like, I like that I get to choose that, like, if I wanted to take a picture and show Liz my hair, like, then I would do that. I get to, like, choose that if I don't want, like, people out on, like, outside to see certain parts of me, like, they don't have to. And it, and it wasn't, it's not about, like, the physicality of your hair or your body or anything like that. Like, I know that there's a lot of, a lot of Muslim women wear it because they feel like it it brings like the sense of modesty and like that's more fitting for your, their personality and stuff. Like that's just never been mine. Like I'm, that's just not my personality. It's not my style, but I also really love that I get to wear something that I get to like walk around letting people know I made a choice about myself. And, and to me, it really comes down to like the power of choice and I keep coming back to that as I'm just like, like I'm, I'm doing a lot of unpacking on myself. Like it is so important that we all start asking ourselves, like Mm -hmm. what are things that we are not choosing for ourselves? What are things that we are doing because we think it's expected of us? Because as my therapist would say, because you think you should. And, and she, she told me, that someone mm-hmm. said to her, I will not shit on myself today. I was going to say, it's one of my favorite things. We always talk about that in therapy. I'm obsessed. Stop I was like, You're shitting sh- all over yourself. Stop shitting <laughs> all over yourself. That's what my wife and, and I talk like, about all the time. Oh, madam, that's very exciting. That, yeah. that means we have great therapists. Um, I just like, I, I really think about that. And so um, there is nothing to say. I mean, the thing, if, the thing that we should always be fighting for is people's right to choose. 
period, end of story for everything, for Mm -hmm. every part of their life. Like, I I do not care if there is something, like if we have different beliefs about different things, like so long as nobody is being hurt, obviously, but I will always fight for your right to choose what you do with your body, what you do with your life, what you do with your soul. And that's because like we're all on different journeys. And so I think that part of it, and, and I don't know, I've never really heard anybody talk about it this way, but like the savior part when people are trying to like quote save muslim women from their supposed oppression that isn't the case um ask yourself like what are you what what are you so uncomfortable with what are you avoiding in yourself like i know that when um when my sister-in-law decided to wear it a few a couple a few years ago um somebody very close to her said you know, I'm really uncomfortable with this, but I'm uncomfortable with the fact that I'm uncomfortable because I can't figure out why. And I thought that that was, I mean, it's obviously that is hurtful to hear and that's fine, but it's also like really important to acknowledge. Like Mm -hmm. I'm uncomfortable seeing Muslim women in hijab, but I also need to ask myself why, like, where does that come from? And don't, don't like, you know, pass it off with, it's because like they're, they must be oppressed or they must, whatever. Like you have to question where your stories have been coming. Are they coming from Muslim women themselves? And that is also not to say that around the world, there aren't people who do, because we still like live in a patriarchal society who do um, force women to dress a type of way. I can, whether it be with the hijab or for example, can I, is there a time for me to share a story? Like this is a really precious story to me. Please. Um, one time I was, I was actually fit. I I filmed my last episode of this series I was doing called a woman's job about women who worked in male dominated fields. And I got on a plane. I sat in the back with a teacher and she, I mean, I could tell she was a teacher before I, she told me she was a teacher. She had like curly red hair, tons of bracelets, tons of necklaces, just like perfect second, third grade teacher. And we start talking She's really nervous. She's about to accept an award for an excellent award for being a teacher. And um, she had so much guilt around it because she felt like her students deserved the award, not her. And she had explained to me that she had come from like this very racist family and that she actually hadn't even met people of color until like later in her life. And and when she started teaching and she herself had held um, different prejudices against people and all of this stuff. And I like helped her with her acceptance speech. We start like really connecting because I'm trying to like help her kind of move through this experience of guilt and like trace it back. So then we pause. And then she looks at me and she says, can I ask you something personal? And I'm like, yeah, of course. Like anybody can ask me anything at any time. I'm like the most open book. Mm-hmm. And she says, what do you swim in? And I'm like, amazing question. I will show you pictures right now. So I show her pictures of like my little burkinis and my like rash garden and surf shorts and whatever. And she goes, oh, that's like really helpful. I got diagnosed with skin cancer. I would wear like long sleeves and, and like a hat and whatever. And she said that her husband had told her that he wouldn't be seen in public with her dressed that way. Mm. And she said, um, she said, because of that, they ended up splitting and she was like, I didn't want that to be the example that I set for my son and daughter. And she said, because of that, I, um, every time I go out on a date, I tell people like that, this is how I dress to go to the beach and pool. Are you okay with that? Mm. And I remember thinking, I like had this mind blowing moment. I'm sitting here with this like woman from a small town in Georgia, white woman who is telling me that her husband was like forcing her to wear something that was harmful to her because of her cancer. And she like, and would not let her cover up her body because of that. But like, you would never think that that was like, you. I don't even know if she knew like that that was like a form of oppression. Like that was a form of her choice being taken yeah. away. 
And what what's that about? Because I think this is the crux of it. We talk about these laws, and, and in France, by the way, a couple of years ago, they were arresting women in bikinis on the beach, uh, yeah. right? They, they were saying, you're not allowed to wear this, you're not allowed to wear that. At the Olympics, we, you know, women uh, who play volleyball were allowed to, to play in those swimsuits. This is like, there's a long, there is well-documented. But this isn't women who wear the veil or women who wear the hijab making these laws. It is no. people, it's like <laughs> mostly white men. So like, what is wrong with you <laughs> that you need to do this to her, right? What does it say about you? And I think we need to come back to masculinity because it, we, we, we really talk about these laws as, you know, women's rights and women's issues. And of course they are, but they're a male problem because if we look at the majority of the people who are actually making these laws, it's it's men. So I'm curious from your perspective, living in this body and going through the world, like, you know, in, in the experience that you have, what do you think is is happening with men that they need to do this? And not all men, hashtag, but yeah, there seems to be a consistent pattern here with guys. It's a tricky thing to answer because obviously like I'm not those men, so I don't really know exactly what's going on on their insides. But I am a big believer in like when we feel the need to control in general, control other people, which Mm -hmm. by the way, like control has a big seat at my table. Like I'm not trying to control how some like my partner dresses or anything like that, unless like there's something I don't like that he's wearing. But, um, but I just know that like my own need of control stems from, um, an insecurity of like uncertainty Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. of something I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And so I think that what it comes down to is like people's projections of their own representations of people and that, that they actually don't know and don't understand. And also like there are people who really do benefit from fear being like a main tool in our society. And even Islamophobia in general is a multi-billion, hundred billion dollar industry. More. How so? How so? Who profits? So ISPU actually did research on this and I'm going to, I'll say that I think that it it was $200 billion. Um, They have it in their 2020 report, which is like a five-year report. And I think that that may have been for a year. And they had a list of all of these organizations that um, funded Islamophobia and waged a war on terror without ever acknowledging the fact that we were all feeling terrorized. And what that looks like is us trying to control people because we don't understand them or that we are, we're just so afraid of them. And then we realize that the more people are afraid, the more people we can control. And that's the thing of it is like, we can sit here and we can talk about Islamophobia. We can talk about people not understanding the hijab or wanting to ban it or whatever. But what's more important for us to talk about is the fact that the oppression of a marginalized group of people results in the oppression of you. Like Islamophobia actually hurts all of us. Like it ruins our ability to live freely, to choose. It, it, it makes us okay with and more open to things like surveillance or racial profiling. I mean, when it comes to Muslims and surveillance, like most people are happy to just turn, um, turn their cheek to the issue because like deep down, I, a lot of Americans actually do believe like, well, I'm not going to mind the survey. Like, uh, by the way, like that's also not people's fault. We have been fed through massive storytelling machines, through pop culture, public opinion, politics, and all of the tools that go into those, into playing with those dynamics. We have been fed the storylines that have told us those things. So like, I'll give you an example my great uncle came here in the seventies. He moved to Oklahoma and he, my family is from Libya. So, um, he left the Gaddafi regime and he was like monitoring the things that Gaddafi was saying. And he had his eyes set on America. And when I asked him like why he wanted to come here, he, his, his answer was the constitution. 
he like he has a copy of the constitution he's obsessed with the constitution and he felt like he was like this is where i we will like my children and i will be able to be f- like totally free and then his second reason was the american people he was like these the people are just so kind and they're so um like neighborly and they're so open and stuff and i was just like really like did you really feel that way did you really think that way in 1986 Ronald Reagan carried out a bombing and um and and just the year before that Back to the Future came out. So in 1985 Back to the Future comes out. The opening scene is Doc and Marty running from Libyan terrorists. Who's coming? Like who like who are they? Who are they? The Libyans, of course. 1986 exactly a year later, Ronald Reagan carries out a bombing and he hits an apartment building, a civilian apartment building that house my family and five of our family members are killed. Mm. And this is literally a year after one of our favorite films growing up, like has like mentioned this thing, which obviously there's like That's, a lot more rhetoric, wow. rhetoric around. It's one of my favorite stuff. movies of all time. And I never really thought of it. I never really Same. noticed that. I mean, yeah. growing up, like I, I, I literally interviewed my 11 year old brother on this. And I was like, did you ever think about that after after that scene, like, did you ever think about how hurtful that was? Cause he had mentioned that it was hurtful. And he was like, no, I just thought about the funny parts. Cause the, the movie is just so funny. And I was just like, wow, I need to learn from him because like, yeah, things are going to hurt a lot of times, but maybe we just need to remember the funny parts. Like, and, and obviously there's more work to do around, like just telling better stories, but, um, he still really enjoyed it. And so do I. So anyway, even after that, even after that happened, I was, I asked my great uncle, I was like, well, like, do you basically like, do you have, like, do you harbor feelings towards America for literally killing our whole, like a whole family? And he just kept coming back to the American people, his love for the American people. And I realized like, I, I had to sit with this for like a couple of weeks. Cause I kept thinking about it and like, we are not our government. We are not our governments. The French people are not their government. The Chi- like Chinese people are not their government. And it's so important for us to like come back to the fact that we have power to get to know one another. Like we have power to get to know our neighbors, to get to know the people that are around us, to ask questions, to develop relationships. Like we can step out of the storylines that are being fed to us if we choose to. That's a really courageous and brave thing to do, but it's also tremendously healing. And the data shows that you immediately decrease Islamophobia the second you meet a Muslim because most, like if not all Muslims in America have never met somebody who's carried out like, or, or know somebody who's like had essentially deviant thoughts or harmful thoughts. Like, I mean, obviously there are people who do really terrible things and they come from all different faiths and backgrounds and, and whatever that is. But, but our responsibility is to like see people as people. Uh, the fact that you say that, like even that you have to make a distinction that um, all the Muslims I know um, don't know someone who has had deviant thoughts and all of these things. The fact, because you don't hear a white person say that you don't see about some white crazy person doing that. And then, and then Justin have to make a disclaimer, like, uh, you know, well, that doesn't represent white people. Totally. Um, same thing I do as a black person, right? You see all the narratives that go on and oftentimes I have to make a distinction and I'm starting to move to a point where, uh, we should not even make the distinction. Like the fact that you are in a position and live a life that you would have to even say that people that have done horrible things, that you have to make sure that there's clarity that mm-hmm. your family or your friends or your community is not associated with that mm-hmm. is uh, really screwed up. Not, oh, not yeah. just, just that. Um, also, I, I'd love to know this whole idea of patriarchy. Does it exist in the same way? Um, and I don't want to only say um, in Islam because, of course, you are Muslim, but there's so much more. You're not just a Muslim woman. You're you're all kinds of things, right? So I don't. You don't have to look at it through that lens. However, you have some experience that maybe I don't have, um, or Justin. So when you look at masculinity in in that community, is there something to point out that men might be able to learn from, or um, at least you know accept, embrace? Mm. 
So I'm going to answer. Thank you for asking that. I'm going to answer this like very, very obviously, very open and very transparently. So past notice instinct is to like give you the facts. The facts are Islam was the first faith or group of people who gave women the right to vote, to inherit, to lead. Um, it prioritizes education for women. Like it's just, it is a very feminist faith. So that's like the facts. And and that's like where I would typically end the answer. Mm. But we do live in a patriarchal society. And so like the the issues that we deal with within our communities are very similar to the issues that people deal with broadly. And I would say that sometimes there, I mean, a lot of times, because also like in America, the American Muslim, like American Muslim faith group is the most, is the youngest and the most diverse faith group in the country. You have people from all different backgrounds, cultures, ethnicities, heritages, everything. Um, One of the harder things that I'm like, coming to terms with is the fact that a lot of us have our own internalized Islamophobia. Like Islamophobia does not exist outside of the Muslim community. And that I'm speaking to um, myself too. Like when, you know, even what you just spoke to about like how the fact that I felt like I had to say those things, like I still feel like I have to say those things, even though I'm literally examining how we shouldn't have to say those things. Like I know that. And, and it's just, it's still not always, always integrated. Like when I interviewed my 11 year old brother, cause he's been, he was like really obsessed with watching all the documentaries on nine 11. He was so fascinated by it because he was born, um, in 2011 to the 10 year anniversary. So when we just had the 20 year, he was kind of going on a whole like Netflix Hulu situation. And he just kept saying to me, like, I just want people to know we're not all like that. It's like hard to tell someone like, especially a kid, like you shouldn't have to feel like you have to say that we like, we are not part of that. We almost, but it's hard to see that because that's not the stories that were being presented. And so I think that um, it's important to note, like we're all we're also dealing with like a lot of these realizations within our community, and it's really hard to fully unpack because um, because a lot of members of this community also have like experience like bicultural identity or multicultural identity, like. I'm first gen Libyan American. My husband is like half Moroccan and his mom is Italian Irish. He grew up in like a Muslim and Catholic household. And so mm. they there was like the ties between that. And so there's so there's just so many layers to all of it. Um and I think part of what we a lot of us are trying to do, what I'm trying to do is like go back to that through the unlearning, like go back to like actually understanding what the faith really stands for and says. And like, that's where I have been getting a lot of my like oomph and hope and just like under and, and be, and realizing, Oh, like Muslims can be patriarchal too. Muslims can be misogynistic too. Like, because they're people, like we're all just people with different experiences. And so, and And part of like the faith's job or a faith's job is like help us move through our shit and move through our issues. And um, I am very open in like how I do, like how I go back to that and how I unpack that. But I think that that's like the most I can speak to that because I'm still like in that. I'm still in it trying to like understand and figure out. And um, literally right after, this I'm like interviewing someone who is a scholar on feminism and is in, in the Arab American community and 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 um, the Muslim community and stuff and so like I'm still trying to learn all of this um, because I realized like that wasn't entire like that's not those weren't the conversations that we had growing up but they're definitely the ones that people are more inclined to having now mm-hmm. well thank you for sharing all of that with us um, and you know, after having laid out all that trauma and explained it, and um, taking the time really to 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 share that with our audience, can you tell us what brings you joy? 
Oh my gosh, bird watching. <laughs> bird watching. Um, That's why you got those binoculars. Yeah, I mean, really, just spending time with like I'm the oldest uh, of five kids, and my youngest brother is eleven, and my sister's um, sixteen, and I just I'm I love just like being I love being around like the like kids. They all know the truth, mm-hmm. and I think I've I've just always been looking for truth. So, well, particularly um, with with, with- religion I, I i'd be curious you know yeah we're talking about all these things oh, how, how it can what be a, a struggle in islamophobic society how does it bring you joy what's what's your lens on that so many things like i think that first the sense of camaraderie and and community is so important and service like my our storytelling company is literally called at your service and that's like the mindset that i've always been raised with um and it's like my family, we have a foundation called IC. We just opened our first community pantry after doing 15 years of like work um, serving the community of people who are experiencing homelessness or in need. And and that like, ha- like living life through that perspective of like it, that, that we should like, we should race to be of service is something that has like always opened my heart so much. Yes, yes, yes. And there's this concept that we have called Tawakkul which mm-hmm. means just like complete trust and surrender in in God and um, in just in your life. And um, that's like really what everything comes back to for me. Like it's, and I wouldn't even say joy. It's just like utter, utter peace. Like mm. everything ends up working out the way that it needs to. And my, my sense in Tawakul has allowed me to never, question why something happened. And that doesn't mean that I accept, like if an injustice happened to me and I'm like, oh, well, there's that. I just like, my brain is literally wired to see openness, possibility, opportunity, understanding, and actively working not to block my blessings. So when terror, like, and and this, this first really hit when I I was in college, I was in journalism school, my final semester. And I, um, had thought I got this job for sure as an intern at CNN in New York. Um, and it was basically told that I was told I was going to get it. And then I didn't get it. And I was so upset. I cried in the classroom. And the next day I got offered a reporting job on a local television station. And like, that was like groundbreaking and made history. And I realized like, oh, duh, like that's why it didn't happen. And then, um, and yeah, just like that overwhelming sense of guidance, like knowing that I can always seek guidance and the answers are always, always presented to me. And, you know, that that's like such a core part of my faith. I don't think that you have to like practice or believe in anything specific for those things to happen. But it because I carry this faith in me, like the way that things present themselves is so clear and so open. And I just, I really love that. And, and and just like knowing that we all have like a direct connection mm. to God and to the divine and that that God exists within us and like is closer to us than our jugular vein. That's what um, mm. the Quran says. And so um, that, it, it just gives me so much peace. And I think right now I'm valuing peace a lot more. Wow. Really appreciate you sharing this. I mean, we're going to jump into rapid fire, but before just before we do, and you don't need anyone to validate you you um, are who you are. But uh, let me just say that I love and appreciate Islam. I love and appreciate mm-hmm. the fact that you um, take the time to come on to a podcast that's not about Islam. Um, and yet you've been gracious <laughs> enough to talk about it in the hijab. And, and because I don't think that your life should have to be every time you go and talk um, about a subject that Islam is the surrounding subject. Um, mm. because that a burden can come with that too. I know that as a black man, if every time I go, the questions are always about me being black, it's like, you know, I'm a lot more than just being black. And yet I also know there's, there's a context to that. And sometimes I see through the lens of that. So I'll talk about that. The mm-hmm. fact that you're gracious to do that, um, means a lot to us. And, um, and you're really quite spectacular in so many ways. Thanks so much for doing this with us. Thank you. That means um, a lot. Thank you. I think we have some rapid fire questions, don't we? Let's do it. All right. When is the last time that you cried? The last time I cried was yesterday. <laughs> Wait, Adams, my husband is right. Was did I cry yesterday? The day before yesterday. Okay, the day before yesterday. 
Oh, what's up, Adam? <laughs> and then every day before that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they said, what's up? That's the average, by the way, for this response, which I think everyone oh, should. Oh, I love it. Heart I'm not, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm so happy to say that. I'm like, yes. Oh, oh, great. Like I needed that release. Thank you so much, body, yeah. for, for showing up for me that way. Mm-hmm. I feel the same way. Jamie. Uh, tell us something you're afraid of. I'm afraid of, unfortunately, working through this, I'm afraid of being distorted. Mm-hmm. Being misrepresented. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you apologized to someone? God, Adam left the room, thank God. Um, the last time I apologized to someone. I mean, I probably, probably when I, I probably apologized to him for being rude. <laughs> like that's, that's, that, that's probably it. I probably said something and then it was in a rude tone and I was like, I'm sorry. Or, um, yeah, I'm just going to stick with that. That's like the most common apology I give. You have a time machine, Nor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You built it yourself. Amazing. I'm so, <laughs> you, Doc and Marty. You get to go back in time. Mm-hmm. Um, to young, to young Nor, you're seven, eight years old. Whatever you, whatever mm-hmm. age that was okay. um, intense for you, and you get to whisper something in your own ear. What do you want to say? Mm, that's so cute. Especially the whisper in the ear part. That's so intimate. I love that. <laughs> you're such a storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> the phrase that came to mind is "We love you," and. And I specifically say we because I think lately I've been feeling like the presence so deeply of like of my ancestors. And mm. as I like when I journal, wow, this is super personal, but it's okay. Um, like every time I finish a journal entry, I always end it with we love you. And I just like I felt that like recently that I had to like start writing that. And so I think that that's what I would say because I think she would mm. feel that. I love that. And now you get to take your home made time machine to the future and you are a guest at your own funeral. What do you hope is said about you? Oh my gosh. That she was the most curious person I ever met. That's what my friends say about me all the time. And I, and it's like, it's probably my favorite thing that people say. Cause mm. I don't, I don't even think that people intend it to be a compliment. Like I think that they, like when they say it, it's like actually just matter of fact. And that's why it's so great to me. Mm. Mm. Wow. Great journalist right there. Right there. Uh, all right. Love it. Let's say your um, 11-year-old brother mm-hmm. comes up to you. Love him. And says, sis, uh, tell me, what do you think it means to be man enough? Mm. Well, I'll tell you right now that he probably wouldn't ask me that. He would just tell me because he is the most, the smartest, most in touch with his feelings kid I have ever met Mm. and I think he would say feeling your feelings means being man enough because that's actually literally what he like talks about talks about crying and feeling your feelings and he sets boundaries too it's so wild I'm just (laughs) like wow beautiful (laughs) like okay I'm not Uh, comfortable with this right now okay all right Hope to have him on. Next. We'll we got to start the eleven-year-old, uh, the eleven-year-old version of Man uh, Enough. We, with, oh my gosh! Too. If you guys had him on, it would, mm. it would just, it would be so much cooler than my, than my episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. no way. So much cooler. Right. He's the coolest. Uh, oh wow! So sweet, Nora. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. You are for sure enough. And, uh, <laughs> Thanks. And I'm really happy that you're not going to shit all over yourself. Not, no more shooting. Mm-hmm. No more shooting and no more deserving. Exactly. Oh, I love it. Thank Just you be. so much for, for hanging out with much. us today. Hope we get Thank to meet you, you in person. We love and, you. Uh, and stick around. We will be right back. This is Man. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Man Enough. Oh, what a what a sweet soul who is so wise beyond her years. Ugh. I can't believe she's 28. No, that's imp- I think she was born 28. Is what I <laughs> it feels like. She came out 
<laughs> right out of the gate with all her but, knowledge. I mean, that was, yeah, I think it, it was a really important perspective that we've had, we, that we really haven't had on the show yet. Some really, really, I mean, I, I felt bad when she was like, oh, this is so much weight of education and having to redefine, you know, define Islam constantly and educate people. But I also, yeah, so I, I'm doubly appreciative that she took the time to do it on our show for our listeners, because I know it will be really helpful to a lot of people. You guys are twins. You guys are like soul twins, I think. I mean, I wish. Um, she's a huge, yeah, uh, inspiration for me. I, I admire her so much. And she's mm. so, she works so hard. Oh, yeah, you can tell since she was 15. Yeah. Well, uh, if you like the conversation, uh, please like and subscribe and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can go to manenough.com slash podcast. Right, Jamie Heath? That's the spot. You said it right. You got that voice the whole thing. Yep. You are my <laughs> elder. I just wanted to check in with you. Wow, wow, wow. I'm Justin Maldoni. <laughs> I'm Liz Blake. I'm Jamie Heath. <laughs> and this is Man Enough. Thank you for listening to the Man Enough podcast, produced by Wayfarer Studios and presented by Procter & Gamble in partnership with Cadence 13 and Odyssey Company. Hosted by Justin Baldoni, Liz Plank, and me, Jamie Heath. If you like what you heard, please follow us and tune in weekly as we undefine masculinity and learn in real time. Justin Baldoni, Jamie Heath, and Tara Malhotra Feinberg from Wayfair Studios, Mark Pritchard and Kerry Rathode from Procter & Gamble, and Chris Corcoran from Cadence 13 are our executive producers. Kahea Kiwaha is our producer. Brandy Cole is head of marketing. Susie Landers O'Connell is our assistant editor. And Josh Schneider is our lead editor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>